0: Well, good morning. Thanks for uh, bearing with us there while we got everybody seated. Sorry for the confusion over there. We had a little uh, seating chart issue, but I, th- I think we got it worked out. Um, at least you're seated somewhere. So um, it's, it's a joy for me this morning to introduce who's going to be preaching for us this morning. Um, this is Scott Hickox. If you've If you've, no one's ever done that for me before. Uh, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, please don't. Um, If you've been around LCF for very long, Scott was a member on our pastoral team for a number of years, but it's been almost 10 years now at this point. He went over to St. Louis where he was pastor um, at a church over there in West County, and then he and his wife Amy have moved back here. They are attending here at, at LCF, and... I asked Scott if he would be willing to preach for us every once in a while, and he said that he would. I asked him how he wanted me to introduce him, and he said, why don't you just say that I'm a friend of yours? Um, but that would be short selling it. Uh, when I first started on staff, Scott was uh, my supervisor when I was the youth pastor for about a year before he went over to St. Louis. And then since that time, he's, he's been a very faithful and wonderful mentor um, to me. And I think the highest compliment that I could give him is that uh, Scott just kind of like oozes Jesus when you're around him. In um, and, and all of your conversations with him, and all of your interactions with him, uh, it is like the person of Christ just kind of flows out of him. And so I'm excited for him to lead us in the word this morning. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 4. Scott's going to pick up where we left off and take us forward through the, the first half of Luke chapter 4. So, Uh, Scott, take it away.
1: Well, thank you. It is good uh, to be here this morning. As Tim said, it's hard to believe that we've been gone. Uh, We were gone almost a little over eight years. And so it's an honor to get the opportunity just to open God's word with you. It's an honor to do that anytime, but it's especially, uh, I don't know, it's just extra special for me today because this place is really special to my wife and I. Um... So we transitioned, we left St. Louis in the midst of the pandemic, so we really didn't get to say goodbye to a lot of people, and we got here uh, to Kansas City, we felt like God called us back home, and we really didn't get to say hello to a lot of people. And so uh, one of the gifts to us, really frankly, has just been coming here every Sunday and being able to worship at LCF, to be among brothers and sisters, to be uh, taught by the word by Tim, and uh, it's just been a gift to us. So we're grateful to be here, and good to be with you this morning. Um, we're going to talk about the temptation of Jesus this morning in Luke chapter 4, but before we do that, I want to ask you a question. I want you to just think with me for a minute. I want you to think about all the miracles that Jesus performed. We're going to get those as we work our way through the rest of the book of Luke. But I know you know a lot of those. He walked on water. He turned water to wine. I mean, just think about all of his miracles. And and which one in your mind just stands out the most to you? Think about that this morning. Because I would submit to you that what happens in our passage today is perhaps the most amazing thing that Jesus does. I mean, just look at the history of mankind and you tell me what is more amazing than someone who never sins. But that's exactly what the Bible says about Jesus. In Hebrews 4.15, we're told that Jesus is tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And Again, I would argue that it's perhaps maybe the most audacious claim in all of the Bible. And our passage today is going to show us that it's true. You see, church, nothing, frankly, is more important to us than this. Because without this, Jesus couldn't have gone to the cross on your behalf or on my behalf. His resisting temptation, his sinlessness, is what makes him qualified to be our Savior. So again, I hope you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 4. That's what we're going to talk about today. And while I hope that, while we do this, while I hope that we... um, we learn something about the ways that we're tempted and how we can combat that. But if that ends up being our focus, then we're going to miss the point today. Because if we're not careful, we can end up focusing on strategies instead of the Savior. I mean, we could end up looking at Jesus and seeing his, Him as, as an example instead of as our deliverer, right? We could spend all our time talking about things that we need to do instead of seeing what Jesus has already done for us. He does what no one else has ever done and no one else could ever do. So here's the big idea right up front. When everyone else fails, Jesus is faithful. When everyone else fails, Jesus is faithful. And church, that is good news. And that's why we can worship Him this morning. So let me just pray for us before we get started, all right? Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for the privilege to open your word. Thank you that you give us your word, that it's truth, and you give your Holy Spirit to teach us in that. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that you would do that uh, by the power of your Spirit, that you would teach us. Uh, I pray that, that, Lord, you would speak, that these things that I've prepared, Lord, protect me from error. Uh, if there are things that are from me, I pray folks would forget them quickly. If they're from you, I pray they would burn in their hearts this morning. So just do a work in our midst, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were here uh, last week, we finished uh, chapter 3. Tim finished that up, and and he read through that whole ancestry.com thing at the end of uh, of chapter 3, right? That that genealogy of of Jesus. And I'm thankful that he read all those names, because I wasn't even going to try it uh, this morning. But we need to go back there, because it's important for our passage today, if we're going to understand it. At the end of chapter 3, Luke goes through this list of of Jesus' genealogy. So-and-so was the son of, and he works his way. And Tim pointed out, he goes all the way back to Adam. And then Luke tells us that Adam was the son of God. You see, Adam's called the son of God because he didn't have an earthly father, right? God created him in his image. And he gave him authority over all creation. And he told him to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And as God's son, Adam's was to expand God's kingdom really beyond the garden to the ends of the earth. But we know what happened, right? If you grew up in church, you know the story of Genesis. Uh, We don't have time to go through all of that, but if you want some homework, you can go back and read Genesis 1 through 3. It's the the creation account. But in chapter 3, uh, Satan tempts Eve in the garden. And then in verse 6, uh, everything falls apart. I mean, this is the verse where we learn where sin was introduced into the world. And and Genesis 3.6 says that, that, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate. And she gave some also to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And that's it. Sin entered the world, and everything changed at that moment. Listen to what Derek Kidner says about this verse. He says, So simple an act, so hard it's undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. See, Luke, I think, included this genealogy of Jesus to remind his readers of the identity of the the first Adam who brought death so that we could see how Jesus, who the Apostle Paul calls the second Adam, how he brings life. Where everyone else fails... Jesus is faithful. All right, so we're going to read this passage in Luke, starting in verse 1 in chapter 4. Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give His angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, and the power of the Spirit and news about Him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. It's the word of the Lord. All right, so Jesus is in, uh, he's in the wilderness. And, and I want to just set the scene, be clear. This is not like a, a picture you have in the Rocky Mountains, this beautiful. Uh, that's not what this is. It's, it's actually the opposite of that. It'd be, it'd be desolate. There'd be no vegetation, no water. It's not a place you would want to go camping or, or hiking. I mean, think more of, of like a desert, okay? And how did Jesus get there? I mean, it wasn't because his Google Maps stopped working, right? He, he wasn't lost. What does Scripture say? It says the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness. Intentionally. Verse 2 says that he was led there to be tempted by the devil. So do you understand what that means to us? It means that this was all part of God's plan. That God is in control here. Jesus is exactly where God wants him to be. And I think that's an important thing for us to understand because sometimes... Sometimes you're right where the Lord wants you to be. And trial and temptation is right there too. In fact, I read one commentator who suggested that it just might be that when you're most filled with the Holy Spirit, when you are walking the most closely with Jesus, that those are the times you're most likely to be led into the wilderness. See, just because you love Jesus, just because you're trusting in the gospel, doesn't mean that you won't have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Following Jesus doesn't mean you're exempt from trials and and temptations and and testings. What it does mean is even if you are in the valley of the shadow of death, he'll be with you. So I don't know where you are. Maybe this morning if you're in the midst of the wilderness, take comfort in that. He is in control and he is with you. All right, so Jesus is in the wilderness. He's been led there by the Holy Spirit. And Scripture says that he's fasting. He's fasting. Tim's going to talk some more about this next week. Um, But fasting is designed basically to to deprive you of some basic comforts, okay? That's what fasting is. It deprives you of some basic comforts so that you'll remember that, that everything you have comes from God, that you are utterly dependent upon God, and that God is better than any of the gifts that He gives, all right? So Jesus is he's in the wilderness. He's engaging in spiritual disciplines. He's praying. He's fasting. He's seeking God. And precisely at that place, Satan comes to tempt him. And the passage says that Satan has been tempting him really throughout the 40 days, but what we see at the end of these 40 days are these three specific temptations. And I would submit to you that, that these three temptations... Uh, these three categories really summarize all the temptations that we face in the world. And the Apostle John talks about them in 1 John 2. He calls them the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. I mean, again, think back to what we just talked about in Genesis 3:6. Uh, remember that passage when she saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh; that it was a desire, that it was uh, what does she say? Uh, there was a delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And it was to be desired to make one wise, the boastful pride of life. It's all right there. So think about those three categories as we work through this. I want you to just think about yourself. Where are you most tempted? What, what, what's your biggest struggle? Is it a desire to do things that God hasn't asked you to do? Is it a desire to have things God hasn't given you? Or is it a desire to be seen by people a certain way? So think about those things as we go through here. The first temptation is in verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now for us to understand how how tempting this must have been, again, we have to remember Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. And I don't know about you, but that's pretty hard for me to comprehend. I mean, some of you are going to be hungry if I preach longer than 40 minutes, right? Okay? But 40 days. 40 days. And this is not some intermittent fasting thing here. Imagine imagine not eating from now until, say, March, okay? How are you feeling? And just keep in mind, you're in the middle of a desert. And so it's at this point of maximum vulnerability that Satan tempts Jesus to make himself something to eat. He's tempting his his flesh here. And let's keep in mind that Jesus could have done it. I mean, in a word, he he could have done it. And frankly, what would have been wrong with that? I mean, keep in mind, scripture says the fast is over, right? He he could eat now. And contrary to what some of you, if you're keto or something, there's nothing sinful about bread. Okay? There's not. So so Jesus, he could eat, and there's nothing sinful about bread. So why doesn't he eat? See, the question that Satan asks here, it's not about bread, it's about God. Satan's first temptation here is is to get Jesus to question God's provision and his care. Satan says, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, why why are you hungry? I mean, where's your father? Doesn't he care? If he cared about you, he could have spread a feast in the wilderness for you. Why are you hungry? Does he even care about you?" you? See, he's tempting Jesus to question the goodness of God. And Satan starts this temptation with one word, with if. He says, if you're the Son of God. Now remember what just happened last week or I think two weeks ago in chapter 3? The baptism of Jesus. What What did God the Father say about Jesus? He said, you are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And now Satan says, if. He's calling God's word into question. And I read someone this week who, who says this is always Satan's go-to tactic. This is what he does. He puts question marks in your life where God has put periods. See, that's what Satan tries to do. Just like in the garden when he, when he was talking to Eve, he said, did God really say that? He, he tries to raise, raise questions to stir doubt in us. He wants us to question God's goodness and His provision. And most of you probably are not tempted to turn stones into bread. But, are you ever tempted to take matters into your own hands? Are are you ever tempted to to help God out a little? Just because He's not doing on your timeline. So where are you tempted to doubt God's provision? Where are you tempted to take matters into your own hands? Is Is it your health? Your job? Your relationships, or maybe your lack thereof. You see, when we doubt God's provision, it it, it exposes our priorities. I think that's another way we could look at this temptation. Because look at what Satan's doing. He takes a good thing, and he tempts Jesus in a moment of hunger to take a good thing and to make that thing ultimate. And I think we are often tempted to do the same, to take a, a good thing and to make it ultimate. I'm going to give you just a few examples. Money is an easy one. I think we get this. Money is not bad. There's nothing bad about money. But when it becomes ultimate, it changes. becomes addicting. We want more and more of it, and we'll, we'll sacrifice anything in pursuit of it, right? We might sacrifice our family. We might sacrifice our integrity. Money was never meant to be ultimate. And when we put it in that place, it destroys everything else underneath it. Here's another example. This one's a little more subtle and maybe a little more dangerous to bring up. But but what about this? What about kids? I mean, raising kids today in our culture has has sort of become a competitive sport. Um, And listen, hear me. Kids are a good thing. They are a gift from God. But they were never intended to be ultimate things. They aren't designed to be the center of your universe or, or anyone's universe. And you see, when you tell them that they are from the time they're young, in your words and your actions, you're setting them up to fail. They're going to face disappointment. Because at some point, they're going to realize that they are not the center of the universe. And they're going to be angry. And they're going to be bitter. They were not meant to be ultimate, so don't make them ultimate. It just destroys them. See, Satan tempts us the same way he tempted Jesus. He'll he'll take a good thing, like like bread, or a good job, or marriage, or children, and and he'll tempt us to make those things ultimate. It's something that, that we feel like we have to have to make our soul alive. But you see, as soon as a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. And I could go on and on about good things here, but... It's important because here's what I think most of us spend a bulk of our time trying to block out the bad things in our life. And we miss the fact that good things are often things that can kill us. So what good thing are you tempted to make an ultimate thing? So, How how do we respond to that? How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 4. Jesus said, it is written, man must not live by bread alone. And what Jesus is saying there is that, that physical bread is good. It's not as important as God. He says, my soul finds its completeness in God and, and not having all my needs met. And Jesus quotes here from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8. And, and the passage he quotes is referencing the children of Israel when they were wandering in the desert and they're complaining about not having enough to eat. And I think what Luke is reminding us here is that, that Israel failed. That Adam and Eve failed. That we Fail. But where everyone else fails, Jesus is faithful. Let's look at the next temptation, verse 5. Now we don't know exactly how this happened, but, but somehow Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, the vast Roman Empire, all the people of the whole world. And he says, Jesus, look at this. All this, it can be yours. And you see, there's some truth in what Satan said, Right? Because all this would be Jesus's one day. Satan was just offering him a shortcut to get there. He says, you can have them now. You, you don't have to wait. Satan was offering him the crown without the cross. See, he was offering him instant gratification. And that's how we like things today, isn't it, right? Our way, right away, right? We want what we want, and we want it now. We can be tempted in so many ways here, but but perhaps the clearest example of of giving in to the lust of the eyes, of of instant gratification in our culture, um, is pornography. I mean, because that is exactly what it promises. You can have it now. This should be yours. You shouldn't have to wait one click, enjoy it. I did some research this week and Statistics say um, that about 64% of men, almost two thirds of men, have viewed pornography in the last month. Um, Now, I know what you're thinking well, that's the world, that's out there. Um, Sadly, the statistics for Christian men are almost identical. And while the numbers for women are lower, they are growing. And again, I hope and I pray that that's not true in our church here, but we we have to face the reality. Statistics would suggest that about half the people in this room have viewed pornography in the last month. And I don't say that to shame anyone. I'm I'm saying it just to name a reality because we can't get help. We can't change until until we're able to name it. We've got to be honest about the reality that many are losing in this battle of temptation, and they need help. And here's the good news, church. There is help. There's grace. There's, there's forgiveness. There are people who want to help. But it does start with admitting that we have a problem. I know the lust of the eyes goes far beyond pornography. It's, it's any time we take something that God hasn't given us, any time that happens, we're giving in to this temptation. So how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 8. He said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Again, he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6. Again, he's referencing the nation of Israel, God's chosen people who, who had failed. See, Jesus didn't come to serve Himself. He came to serve God. He was willing to wait. He wasn't going to take a shortcut. When everyone else fails, Jesus is faithful Now, I don't know if you're starting to notice, there's a theme in these these temptations. The devil is working really hard here to make sure that Jesus doesn't suffer. I mean, the first temptation, he says, oh, Jesus, you're hungry. God wouldn't want you hungry here. Make yourself something to eat. And the second one, he says, wait, people are going to reject you. People are going to kill you. No, 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 I'll give you all the kingdom so you can rule over them. And now in this last temptation... He's going to say, what, you're going to the cross? You're you're going to be beaten and and scourged and, and drowned in your own blood? No. Doesn't the scripture say your feet shouldn't even hurt? See, I don't want us to miss this. Every attack from the evil one here, it's not built around wickedness. It's built around comfort. Specifically in this last temptation, Satan says, if you're the Son of God, again, he's raising the question, if, if you're the Son of God, your feet shouldn't even bleed, he says. So Satan tempts Jesus to jump. He says, if, if God's really your father, if he really loves you, um, he'll protect you. Don't you see here? He, he's saying Jesus shouldn't even have to suffer. And he gets creative this time. He, he even quotes scripture back to Jesus. He knows the word well enough to twist it to meet his needs. See, the temptation was if Jesus jumped and, and people saw the angels catch him, they would know he was the Messiah. People would see him as the Messiah without ever having to see him suffer. The question I asked you at the beginning about the boastful pride of life was, how, how do I want to be perceived? You know, do you have a desire to be, be seen by people a, a certain way? I don't know if you struggle in this area, but, but I do. I do. Um, and even this week, as I was preparing this sermon, I was struggling with that. You see, I, I haven't preached in, in a while, and, and I haven't been here in, in, in eight years. And so I was, I was nervous. Um, I mean, I'm always a little nervous to open God's Word, but I was, I was more so um, this week. And, and so one, one morning this week, I'm laying in bed about five in the morning, and I'm, I'm worrying about the sermon, and, and then it hit me that uh, the that sermon was, was for me. Um, well, I was certainly concerned about I want to want to speak the word accurately, I don't want to mislead anyone. I was certainly concerned about those things, but if I'm honest, I was most concerned about if, if this sermon doesn't come together, what what are people gonna think about me? What's Tim gonna think about me? See, all my insecurities were were coming out. I needed to be reminded that even if I failed, that Jesus is faithful. You see, so often I think we're concerned about protecting our image and about what others think of us. And so, you know, we dress up and we come to church and we, we pretend that everything's okay, like we're crushing it, like life is like it was good. See, that's exactly what the enemy wants us to do. He, because he knows if he can keep us from being honest, he can keep us from getting help see, this third temptation is a wicked lie. We had a young woman in our church at St. Louis, and she shared her story one, one Sunday morning. And it was a, it was a heartbreaking story of, of infidelity and addiction and, and broken relationships. And, and it was a story that very few people, frankly, would be brave enough to share uh, in public. And I was, I was really proud of her. Um, and then she told of how Jesus had, had rescued her. There were still consequences for her behavior. She was still in the midst of that, but... But God was redeeming her story, and she was testifying to that reality. And when the service was over, a, a man came up to me, and he was, he was kind of smiling, and he said, you know what? He said, Kate is the freest person in this church today. You see, she knew what God thought about her, and so her shame was gone. She was free. It was beautiful. So often this boastful pride of life, it feeds our shame and it tempts us to keep secrets. And the temptation is so often to think that we are the only ones struggling. So can we just put that notion to rest this morning once and for all? Listen, I don't know many of you, but I know this. Everyone in here is struggling with something. Everyone. Everyone has temptation. And everyone fails. But where everyone else fails, Jesus is faithful. See, I think Luke shares this story to give us hope. Because he wants us to know that Jesus can deliver us. how How can he do that? How can he break the addiction in your life? How can he deliver you from the enslavement that sin and temptation brings? Because he breaks the neck of Satan here. Now, it's not complete. This is a foretaste of what's to come. We're going to get there later. On the cross, Jesus is going to crush Satan. He's going to disarm the rulers and the authorities. And even that is a foretaste of what's to come. Because one day, one day, Satan is going to be cast out forever. And Luke 4 is a foretaste of what Jesus has brought. He's brought deliverance. He's brought forgiveness. He's brought freedom. And he wants you to experience that now. So how do we experience that freedom? How how do we avoid giving in to temptation? Um, Let let me just say this. Someone once said that you can't beat an enemy if you don't know uh, the enemy. And there's a lot to say here. I don't have much time. but, But when we think about Satan, we can err in one of two ways. We can... Um, We we don't give him enough credit, right? We just pretend he doesn't exist, or or we give him too much credit, and we live in fear. So the most important thing I want you to remember today about Satan is that he is not God. He's not equal with God, okay? God is omnipotent. That means God is all-powerful. The devil is not. God can do anything he wants to do. The devil can only do what God allows him to do. He's not all-powerful. God is also omniscient. That means he knows everything. Satan does not. He's smart, but he doesn't know everything. And lastly, God is omnipresent. That means he is everywhere at once. The devil is not. He can only be in one place at one time. Consequently, that means he can only tempt one person at a time. And what that likely means is you've probably never directly been tempted or attacked by Satan himself. Satan, the scripture only identifies six people that, that Satan tempted directly. Now I want to be clear. While Satan himself may never have directly attacked you, he has a host of fallen angels to do his work. They're always stealing, always killing, always destroying. That's what they do. So here's what we need to know. Satan is not God. He's powerful. He's smart. But I think what Luke wants you to know more than anything else this morning is he is defeated. Okay. You need to know that this morning. And that should encourage us as we think about the application. If you listen to sermons on this passage, probably the most common application you'll see is that that we need to memorize Scripture because you notice how Jesus responds every time to a temptation. He quotes Scripture, right? I don't disagree with the application. I think it's great. But let me just offer a caveat to that. My fear is that oftentimes people hear that exhortation and they think, well, um, if I just have the right words, then I will conquer temptation. It almost becomes like a a mantra or like an incantation. That is not what Jesus is doing here. And that's not how we fight temptation. I mean, the reason we read our Bibles, the reason we meditate on Scripture, the reason we memorize Scripture is so that we know Jesus better and we believe His promises, Belief in the promises of God is our best weapon against the enemy. Because Satan is a, is a liar. And the best way we combat those lies is with the truth. We have to know the truth, not just so we speak it, but so that we believe it, so that we can walk in it. And that's why I'll just offer maybe one more application. I think it's an important element in battling temptation. And that is godly relationships. Because when, we, when we're alone, that is when we are most vulnerable. And we need people in our lives to remind us of who Jesus is, of what He's done for us, and why we can trust Him. We need other people to remind us of the the promises of God. Because it's hard sometimes, right? I mean, if if we're honest, I think there are times where all of us feel like maybe God's withholding something from us. We, We wonder if God is really that good. Is he really going to take care of me? I mean, there are quiet moments at times we, we worry that he's not going to give us true pleasure, or real joy, or real satisfaction, or real purpose. But I want you to know this morning, that is exactly what he promises. Now, Some of you may be wondering this morning, okay, but, but what about me? I've already failed. I've already blown it too many times. Scott, you don't, you don't even know me. You don't know my story. Is there any hope for someone who just constantly gives in to temptation? As I said before, I may not know your story, but I know this. All of us have failed. That's what this passage is about about one who succeeded where we lost, one who trusted when we turned away, one who was faithful when we failed. One of the passages that gets me through temptation, it's right at the end of Luke's gospel. And I'm sure we're going to get there sometime later uh, this year. <clears throat> but it's right before Jesus is arrested. Uh, I'm going to put it on the screen. You don't have to look it up. This is in Luke 22:31. 31. Jesus says this to Peter, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. See, Satan and his demons, they have demanded to, to sift you. That's temptation. They're going to they're sift you. But Jesus has prayed for you. In fact, he's at the right hand of the Father right now, praying for you. And you see what this verse says? It doesn't say, if maybe you turn back. What does it say? It says, when you turn back. See, because when Jesus prays, things happen got an addiction, you've got a struggle, you've got some forgiveness issue that you're you're not willing to let go of, whatever it is. And and listen, I know what you're thinking. Wait, he didn't list my sin, so this is not for me. Listen, that's how the enemy wants you to believe. Whatever sin you're thinking about right now, whatever that is, sin that you keep falling in, whatever, Jesus says, I'm praying for you in that. And he says, when you return, strengthen your brothers and sisters. Tell them what I've done. I recognize some of you today, may, you may be enslaved. You, you may be living in the shame of your sin. And you've given into temptation. Listen, just cry out to God this morning. I mean, I had to do it this week. Just say, God, forgive me. Please forgive me. Help me. Jesus is a sympathetic Savior. He doesn't have a pointed finger. He has open arms. Those of you that have been delivered, would you strengthen your brothers and sisters? Would you testify to God's goodness, tell them, encourage them what he has done? See, we need reminders because the enemy's oldest trick, maybe his only trick, is to get you to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's provision. What he'll say to you is, listen, God hasn't given you what you need, so go ahead, take and eat. But Jesus, right before he went to the cross, he used those same words to tell us something completely different. Scripture says on the night that Jesus was betrayed that that he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. and He said, take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. See, what Jesus is telling us in those words is that God has provided for you. He's provided everything you need, and it's Jesus. So he says, take and eat freely. Because your heavenly Father, in all of his goodness, has given you the most precious thing in the world. He's given you Jesus. You see, Jesus turned those words of temptation into words of salvation by his perfect obedience, his resistance to temptation, and by his death on the cross in our place. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved. And he rose victoriously from the grave, conquering sin and Satan and death. Church, believe that this morning. Where everyone else fails, Jesus is faithful. Let me pray for us. Father, what a gift you have given us in your Son. Sometimes it is so overwhelming when we realize how frequently and how desperately we fail, Lord. But thank you that your grace is sufficient. um, That Jesus is faithful. Lord, if there's some here today that just need to believe that reality for the first time, I pray that you would open their hearts to do that. For those who maybe are just living in shame right now, would you let them know how much you love them, Lord, and would you set them free? Set them free from the bondage that shame and sin can hold us in. And as a people, would you make us people who, who Lord, would trust and believe in your promises, that, that truth would reign over lies, and that we could walk in the reality of your grace. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his faithfulness. May we believe that this morning in his name. Amen.
0: Amen, you can go ahead and stand. Uh, just a couple of, of things as we close. The first one is that uh, maybe maybe one of the hardest things for us to believe when it comes to our own like temptation and sin is that when, like Hebrews said, where Scott started this morning, that we have, you know, we've got this high priest who's able to sympathize with us because he's been tempted in every way we are yet without sin. One of the hardest things I think for us to believe when it comes to our sin is that if we were actually open and honest about that, that Jesus would not only meet us in the middle of that, but that he wouldn't do so begrudgingly. That the confession of our sin and the honesty that we would have about our sin would actually be something that would compel Christ closer to us. He would sympathize with us in our weakness. And so Scott mentioned the importance of relationships when it comes to temptation. You might have a small group relationship, you might just have a friendship or discipleship relationship. Um, I can't encourage you enough to lean into those places with an honesty about where it is that you feel tempted, sin that you might be struggling with and allow sort of the vulnerability and the transparency of that to be what it is that turns you to really believing that Jesus would meet you in that place, whether it be through the conversations with those individuals, whether it be through a counselor, it could be through a conversation with someone on our staff, that the naming of that thing would not only be something that begins to move you toward freedom from it, but would also be the means by which you allow your heart to believe that Jesus would meet you in the middle of that temptation and then be powerful enough by His grace to help you walk out of it. Uh, I cannot encourage that enough. And so if that's a conversation you need to initiate with someone that you're already close to, by all means, initiate a conversation about that. If it's something that you need to reach out to someone on our staff, a pastoral member of our staff team, any one of us, then please reach out to us and we would love nothing more than to be able to help walk alongside you in the middle of that. The second thing is, um, Scott talked about those words of obedience becoming uh, words of salvation. The man does not live on bread alone, take and eat. We're gonna celebrate communion together as a church next week. And so if you attend our services, it'll be here laid out for you when you come in. If you watch with us um, online, then I want to encourage you next week to have some elements ready. Uh, We'll celebrate communion together uh, as a reminder of the fact that in all the ways that we fail Jesus has been faithful. So we'll do that together next week. Thanks for being here today. As a is a joy to get to worship alongside you. Open up God's word with you. We will see you again soon.